Good morning and welcome to the Houghton Wesleyan Church. It's a blessing to be here with you this morning. Please stand for the call to worship, the invocation, and the hymn that follows. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it in all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the God, Father. Please pray with me. Dear Lord, be in this place today. Bring your message through Pastor Wes and have our hearts open to receive it. In the Lord's name we pray, amen.
is great to see you as we gather for worship today. Before you're seated, uh, share a word of greeting with others who are here in worship this morning as well. Any of you who may be guests with us this morning, we're glad that you're here. And uh, just a couple of things I want to highlight. Uh, tonight at 5 o'clock, we will be gathering in the church community room for a time of fellowship and ice cream. Probably don't need to say anything more. Uh, we're having ice cream, so you come. Uh, it's also, uh, we're also kicking off the 50th year of Valley Preschool here at the church, which is pretty exciting. So there'll be a few things uh, related to that as well. So please join us tonight at 5 o'clock, just some time to connect, maybe reconnect, or for the first time uh, with others here in the church. And uh, just also notice that next Sunday, after our worship services in the morning, we're having a church-wide picnic. Love to have you be a part of that, and you see some information in the bulletin related to that as well. The Old Testament reading this morning is from Psalm 133. Hear the word of the Lord. How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down upon the collar of his robes. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. As the ushers come forward, please stand for the singing of the doxology. You have blessed our lives richly. Help us to be gracious as you have been gracious to us and give from our hearts. In the Lord's name we pray, amen.
In a nutshell, that's why we come to worship, to give God glory. We give God glory through the songs that we sing and through the reading of his word and the opening of our hearts to his word and the the fellowship together and as we pray together. And uh, there are many facets to prayer. We offer our words of intercession, asking God for his deliverance and help, and we'll do that in a moment. But we also come in prayer to acknowledge our sins, to acknowledge our need for God. So I invite you to join me in the prayer of confession that is printed in your bulletin as we pray together. Let us pray. Merciful God, we confess to you now that we have sinned. We confess the sins that no one knows and the sins that everyone knows. We confess the sins that are a burden to us and the sins that do not bother us because we have grown used to them. We confess our sins as a church, hesitating to love one another, to forgive one another, to give ourselves to one another like Christ. Father, forgive us. Send the Holy Spirit upon us as you did your disciples, that he may give us power to live as you have called us to live. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Father, we do indeed thank you for hearing our prayers. We thank you and we offer glory to you because of what you've done for us in Christ Jesus. We bring glory to you because of how you are involved in our lives day by day. This morning as we come to to offer our words of intercession, we also want to give you thanks. We give you thanks for, for answers to prayer. Thank you for the healing that we are witnessing in Bob Brown and in Ben King, Brian Orbacher, and others that we have been praying for. Continue to work your miraculous healing in them and in us. We thank you, Father, that you are actively involved in our lives and we bring before you the burdens and the concerns of our hearts in a spirit of gratitude that you hear us when we pray, that you're at work. We pray for for your comforting presence upon those who grieve. We pray for your healing power upon all who are struggling with health concerns. Dan Gurley, Gus Prinzel, Louise Prinzel, Florence Tuber, Rosalind Danner, Isabella Doherty, Tim Nichols, Nancy Cole, Peter Lingenfelter, Cheryl O'Brien, Doris Asepian, Isla Shea, Sheldon Emerson, Bill Getty, Mike Raybuck, Bev Rett, Emily Cricklar, and others. May your healing grace be evident in each one. Father, we pray that you will help us to see you, giving us confidence in our uncertainty, giving us hope in our despair, giving peace where there is chaos. We pray not only for ourselves, but also for our nation and our world. We think of the many people in our nation and around the world who are continuing to struggle with tragedies and disasters even as new ones seem to arise 
virtually every day. We pray for our world of of war and violence and ask that you would bring peace. We pray for those who are refugees. Provide them safe places to be and to live and to settle. And that your people would be a comfort and a source of hope and strength. We pray, Father, for your church. Thank you for how you're at work in this church. We pray for churches around us. Today, for the Belmont United Methodist Church, Pastor Timothy Gleason, pour out your blessing upon this gathering of believers as they serve you and each other and their community and beyond. We pray for your church around the world. Pray for David and Heidi Heisinger as they go this week to Cameroon to, to share with the graduates at the Rainforest International School, a place they know well, a place they have served. We ask that you would give them safety and health and a fruitful ministry to the, ministry, to the, the students and the staff there. We pray for our brothers and sisters in Colombia. They have faced great opposition in a, in a very chaotic environment. But now that there is potential for peace and an end to, to strife and, and a, a real stability there, we pray that the church would be a presence of ongoing peace and hope and life. We pray that you would give courage to the church, to the Christians there, and that they would see you and have faith in you And that would spread all throughout this great country of people that you dearly love. Father, thank you for being present with us in worship today. Thank you for all of your blessings, too numerous to count, and yet so important to remember. Father, continue to draw us closer and closer together. That as we love each other, we love others. Let us be your people, as you've called us to be. And we ask all of this through the grace and the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, remembering the prayer that he taught his disciples to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.
What shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? And he who has lavished his love upon us has called us to love like he does. So let us consider how we love one another, how we encourage each other toward love and good deeds. For he who has promised, our Father is faithful. By this all men will know we love our Savior if we love each other. New Testament scripture reading this morning is in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 10 through 18. Following the scripture, children may be dismissed for children's church. Hear the word of the Lord. 
I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, come from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. And still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This is the word of the Lord.
Please be seated. There are many parts of Scripture that astound me and amaze me. There are those places where I, I read something and if I'm really engaged with it, I, I keep coming back to it again and again, trying to grasp what's being said. One of those places for me is the 10th chapter of John's Gospel. In this as this chapter unfolds, Jesus is talking about sheep and shepherds. He's talking about the difference between him, the good shepherd, and all the other wannabe shepherds. And he makes the difference between them, and he talks about how these other shepherds, you know, they, they're, they're hired hands, they're really committed to the flock, something happens, they run. And he says, that's not who I am to you. And you get to verse 10, and he makes this astounding statement. He says, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come that you might have a rich, satisfying life. Some translations say, I've come to give you abundant life. It's that phrase that stops me in my tracks. That Jesus comes so that we might have a rich, satisfying, abundant life. And the thing about that that's so amazing to me and fascinates me is that I think one of the great struggles of our human nature is to believe that's true. We spend so much of our lives fighting with God about that. When, when life doesn't happen the way we want it to, when we feel disappointed, when we are disappointed in God, when there are troubles and difficulties and struggles, one of the first things that we wrestle with is believing that God really wants us to have this kind of life. That God's intent for his creation is blessing. And we wrestle with that. And the evil one keeps whispering in our ears, like he did Adam and Eve, that's not really who God is. And all of life, and really in one way, is to is for God to convince us that this is who he is. That his desire for us is to bless, to bless us. But the other part of that is how God goes about blessing us. And and the source and the ways in which God brings blessing into our lives as his people. And that brings us to Psalm 133. Because Psalm 133 says, it begins, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live in unity. And when you come to the end of this, he says, it is in this life of unity as God's people that we find the blessing of God forevermore. And I think one of the great 
struggles of the church is to make the connection between unity and the great blessing of God. We have a tendency to think, well, unity is a good thing. We're happy for unity. It's just not vital. We can exist without unity. We can experience all of God without being interested in unity. But I think Psalm 133 and other places in Scripture are telling us unity is more important, more valuable than we realize. I'm fascinated by the fact that this song of ascents, this song that the, that the, um, the Israelite people sing on their way to worship, on the way to the great festivals, is a song about unity. Excuse me just a moment. Turn that off a second. Here they are, on their way, walking together to worship, on their way to Jerusalem, on their way to celebrate this great festival of God, and they're singing about unity. And they're saying, this is one of the greatest things that God could ever do. This is one of the greatest blessings of life, unity. You think about the things in your life where you say, this would be so awesome to experience. This would bring joy and blessing. When I think about things that are wonderful, when I think about things that are good, when I think about my life being blessed, think about those moments. And the psalmist says, that's what unity is. That's what it feels like when, we, when God's people experience unity. And to, to make that point, the psalmist says, let me give you some metaphors. Let me give you some pictures of that. And here are the pictures that the psalmist gives us. This kind of unity is like precious oil poured out on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It's as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. And you and I read that and go, really? What does that even mean, right? You're going to pour oil on my head? I'm going to be sitting here drenched in oil? I don't know. I got to tell you, that doesn't really sound like good and wonderful to me. It sounds kind of sticky to me when I think about it. Of course, you have to understand their context. So you go back to the book of Exodus, go back to the book of Leviticus. God brings his people out of Egypt. They build the tabernacle. And God says, now when you come to worship, I'm going to assign Aaron and his family to be priests. They're going to represent me to you and they're going to represent you to me. They're going to be the people who stand in the gap. And you're going to come and sacrifice. And Aaron and his sons and their descendants are going to take those sacrifices. And they're going, they going to offer those for you. And they're going to be the people who are going to help you worship me. And help you know me and experience me. And the fascinating thing about all of that is that God initiates that. The Israelites don't come to God and say, okay, you've called us to your people can we have a relationship with you as your people? Can we, have, can we have a way of knowing you and you knowing us? That'd be really great if we could. I, that's the last thing on their minds. God says, before they have a chance to even think about it, I want to be close to you. I want to be intimate with you. I want you to be my people. I want to be your God. And the, the whole system of worship is how we're going to do this. And the priests 
are going to be right in the middle of all that happening. And so when they come to worship, when they come to sacrifice, when they come to pray, when they gather together and the priests are standing before them, the priest is there representing the presence of God to them. And it is a joy to them to have that experience. And how does God get all that started? He says to Moses, all right, bring Aaron before all the people, and I want you to anoint him with oil. You know, we anoint with oil and we put a little thing on the forehead. We ought to try this. Maybe that would be fun. You know, of course, we'd have to clean up afterwards, right? Do this outside. But, if we, you know, we put a little speck of oil on him. They pour oil on the head. And Moses pours oil on Aaron's head. And the oil throughout Scripture, Old and New Testament, represents the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's one of the reasons why we do, we anoint people at times when we pray for them, particularly for healing. Because it's it's a symbol of the Holy Spirit being present as we pray. And the oil being poured on Aaron's head, and the same thing on on, uh, Samuel does for Saul and David, is the presence of the Holy Spirit. And God is saying, this is something I have done. I am here. I am present. This is a good thing. What I love about this, this psalm is that the psalmist takes it far beyond what Leviticus describes for us. Leviticus says that Aaron stands before Moses and Moses pours oil on his head. The psalmist says, here's what unity is. Unity is pouring oil on Aaron's head, all that's, all that's involved in that, all that that means. And he just keeps pouring and pouring and pouring and pouring and pouring. So much oil. You don't get this description in, in Leviticus. So much oil that his hair is drenched, his beard is drenched, his clothes are drenched, and there's a puddle of oil all over the ground. And I think the psalmist is saying, when you think about the blessings of God, when you think about the God at work in your life, as people in the world, you have this abundance of God's blessing and spirit. And that is what it feels like to live in unity together. But he has another metaphor too. It's not enough, the pouring of oil. He says, it's like, it's like the dew on Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon, the tallest peak in that part of the world, snow-capped year-round. And the, and the waters of Hermon, the dew and the, the moisture of Hermon, flow down into the Jordan River. And out of the Jordan River, the, the, the land of Israel and the deserts are watered. And I think the psalmist is saying, When you live together in unity, it is like the life-giving presence of God for you. Without the waters, without the dew of Hermon running into the waters of Jordan, giving life to the people of Israel, there would be no place to worship. There would be no place to live. It would be impossible. God has provided this life-giving water. And the psalmist says that life-giving water The joy of that, the blessing of that, is what it's like when God's people live in unity. And the psalmist is so excited about it. It's only three verses, but he's so excited about this vision of God's people living in unity. He finds it hard to describe. These are the best pictures he can come up with. And they're powerful symbols. I just think we wrestle with seeing it that way. 
interesting thing about these two metaphors, it's, it's sort of ironic that, that the two metaphors the psalmist uses to describe unity are two things that don't mix. You know, Tim Tennant, I was reading something from Tim Tennant about this, the president of Asbury Seminary, and he was talking about that, and I thought, that is true. That's profound. You know, oil and water, they don't mix. You know, you can, you can stir them around. The oil keeps rising. They mix. You got, if you have a little, little oil from your car in your driveway and it rains, what happens? The water beads up on it. They don't mix. You can stir that cup, but in a few seconds, they'll be dividing again. And Tim Tennant makes the point that he said, I think uh, this is the psalmist's way of saying unity doesn't mean sameness. It means the same kind of spirit in our diversity. Because God is a God of diversity. God loves diversity. God creates diversity. God embraces diversity. All you have to do is look around at creation. All that God has made, you see diversity. I love John's picture in in Revelation about heaven and the vision that he gets there. And, And he says, After this I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation, tribe, and people, and language, standing in front of the throne before the Lamb, worshiping God. How does John know that there are people from every language, tribe, people, and nation? Because he can tell the difference. He can hear the difference. I think sometimes we think of the new heaven, new earth, that our eternal existence, we're all sort of clones. And John said, that doesn't look like that to me. And unity is not unanimity. It's if we have to agree on every little petty thing. And it's not uniformity, that we all have to walk exactly the same way and think exactly the same way. Unity is having the same mind. The same spirit. It's relational unity. It's the kind of unity that's focused in Jesus. The kind of unity in which we love each other. In which we care for each other. In which we have the same purpose in mind. And that is following Jesus. Giving our allegiance to Jesus. It's what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 12. He talks about the church as a body, and he, he makes it so clear. He says, not, we're not all ears, we're not all eyes, we're not all toes, we're not all hearts. We're all these things. And because we're all different, it makes a functioning, healthy body. C.S. Lewis talks about how, you know, when you go to a performance of an orchestra... Nobody's going to pay money to go hear an orchestra in which every single instrument plays exactly the same note. I mean, you couldn't give away tickets to that. What we go to hear is all the different instruments playing all their different notes, but they do it in the same rhythm. They do it at the same pace, in the same place, under the direction of the same conductor. And when you hear that, what you hear is harmony. The New Living Translation uses that word instead of unity. It says how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters live together in harmony. I like that. 
It is this bringing together of all our different notes into this beautiful music under the direction of the same conductor. And no one, no one goes off on their own. All of them follow what the conductor wants to do. When I was in high school, I sang in church choir. And, uh, you know, my thought was, you, whenever you're singing, you sing loud as you can. You want to carry it, right? Uh, want people to hear you. And I, our youth pastor was in the choir. He stood next to me. And one day he said to me, you know, Wes, he said, when you sing in a choir, the point is not to sing as loud as you can. The point is to blend in. Like, oh, okay. He said, what you need to do is to think about, you listen to the other people around you and you match your voice to theirs. You match the volume of your voice to theirs. You match, you match the tone and the tenor of your voice to theirs. Because the point is not for people to hear you. The point of the people is for people to hear the choir. And that's out of the choir that we make beautiful music. And there's a place for solos from time to time. But the church is about being a choir. And the music of the choir. And that's hard. Because what that means is we have to, we have to adjust ourselves to other people. And that, that impinges on our freedom. And none of us want anything to impinge on our freedom. We want to do what we want to do the way we want to do it. However, whenever we want to do it. But the call of the gospel as the church is to say, I, I, I change how I operate to some degree in order to be a part of the bigger picture, the greater good. It's not sameness. It's a call to unity in our diversity. And that means that we, we realize this is not easy. He, the writer says that we are called to live together in unity. You know, you know it would be no miracle at all to live in unity if we didn't live together. Right? I'm sure you could call that unity. It would be a facade. But if you don't have to interact with each other, if you don't have to spend time with each other, unity is no big deal. But when you are together... When we spend time together, when we connect with each other, when we are in community, then unity becomes difficult. It's a challenge. But that's the only place unity can happen. Real unity takes place in community. There's no other way. And the call of community is to say, I care as much about them as I, as I do myself. I'm as, I'm as involved and interested and, and accountable to them as I am to myself. We connect ourselves. That's hard. It's a challenge to us. Because our, our first priority often is, I want my rights. And the call of unity is to give up our rights for the good of the whole. Now, sometimes we do that by saying, well, you know, we're going to disagree. We don't see eye to eye. That's going to happen. You can't help that. That's just life. And, and to ignore that is, is not unity. That's denial. And the gospel never calls us to denial. But somehow in the midst of our diversity, we have to figure out how we live together. Now, sometimes we say, well, I guess we just agree to disagree. And I've always thought, well, yeah, that makes sense. And one, a friend of mine said to me, you know, I, I don't think that's a biblical concept. 
Because de- agree to disagree means, ulti- really, in reality, I'm right, you're wrong. And if we work at this long enough, I'll convince you that you're wrong and I'm right. And so we're going to agree to disagree because we both think we're right. We both think each other is wrong and we're at an impasse. Maybe it would be better to think, not we'll agree to disagree, but I need to listen to what you're saying. I need to hear you. Because agree to disagree implies I've figured everything out. And we haven't. None of us have figured it all out. And there are always people we can learn from, always people we, from, whom, from whom we can grow and develop. And we need to listen in a spirit of learning and submit to each other. And to say, there are things that I'm sure you can teach me. Not, you know, I don't have to change what I believe is my core beliefs. And, and I don't have, to, I don't have to, to change the things that I believe are right. But I also have come to the realization that I don't know everything either. I haven't figured everything out. And God has given you some insights that I haven't yet received. And I need to hear those to be a better follower of Jesus. And that kind of mindset, that kind of humility and submissive spirit is the crucible in which unity develops. Are we all going to agree about everything? Of course not. That, that would be unrealistic. I, don't, I think that would be crazy. But we are always coming together with the mindset of everyone else has something to teach me. God has something to say to me through everyone in some way or another. And that mindset is how we develop this this life, this community of love and unity and grace. It's it's that kind of spirit that, that we see ultimately in the eternal kingdom. When we were singing, the church is one foundation, I was struck by the last lines of the last verse. And it says, O happy ones and holy, Lord, give us grace that we, like them, the meek and lowly, on high, may dwell with thee. I find that fascinating that he's describing the universal church and the eternal kingdom of people who have gone before us and who are meek and lowly. The spirit of vulnerability, the spirit of, of listening and learning and, and surrender and submission. That's what the eternal kingdom is about. We sometimes wonder, you know, why don't people in the world get along? Unity in the world and culture will, has to start in the church. If God's people can't get along, how will we ever expect anybody else to get along? It starts with us. I think that's part of what Jesus means when he says, how will people know you're my disciples? Because you love each other. You care for each other. And people say something's different about the way those people connect. I want to know more about that. It's a challenge. In the passage we read in 1 Corinthians, Paul, you know, right after his greeting, he jumps right into it. You know, he, he doesn't mess around. He's saying, look, I hear the divisions among you. 
what, do you, what is this about? How can, how can there be divisions in the church of Christ? Some follow Apollos, some Paul, some Peter, some only Jesus. And he, are these people divided? And he gives them this whole thing about, you know, the, the, the importance of, of unity and trying to get rid of their divisions. And then you come to verse 18 and he says the, that the message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. And I, I sort of always thought that Paul's changing his subject matter. And if you're in your Bibles, probably it has a, a different heading there, starting a different section. And I see those things separated, but it just struck me recently that they're actually connected. And I think what Paul is saying is the people who, who are divisive, the people who are promoting these divisions, see the cross as foolishness. Because the cross is about surrender and submission. The cross is about giving up our rights. The cross is about loving. The cross is about humility. No wonder the cross looks foolish. Because the whole heart of divisions is arrogance. And Paul says, folks, don't even, you don't realize how serious what you're doing is. It's, you're, you're saying the cross is foolish and that's leading you to destruction. But we who have recognized that the cross is the way of the gospel. We've seen the cross as the power of God to unite us together in Jesus. When Jesus ushers in his eternal kingdom, there will be unity. It's hard to envision the eternal, our eternal existence as anything but unity, right? I mean, it, it wouldn't be heaven if we're all fighting with each other. But we, aren't li- we won't live in unity because we can't do anything else. We'll live in unity because we want nothing more than Jesus. Everything about our being will be absorbed in worshiping Jesus. And one of the ways we will worship Jesus is not only loving him, but loving others. That great commandment, that is an eternal commandment of the kingdom. And in the new heaven and the new earth, our focus will be so much on Jesus that we'll be filled with the spirit of Jesus. And we will love each other as Jesus loves us. And the question for us is, what would prevent us from wanting to live that now? To know the blessing and the joy and the wonder of living together in unity now, like we will then. Every week we pray, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And when we pray that prayer, we're saying, God, let the unity of your kingdom to come be the unity of our lives now. And that's why we come to this table. If there's anything that grieves God's heart, maybe the most grievous thing to God is that through the history of the the church, that this table has been a point of division, divisiveness for people, instead of a point of unity. 
Because at this table, we come on level ground. This is not a table about who's deserving and who's undeserving. This is a table for everyone who recognizes we are all undeserving. It's a table of grace. And we're welcome to this table to experience and to to feed on Jesus because we recognize that anything we are, anything we've ever accomplished, anything we know is because of the grace of God. And we come to this table in humility and thanksgiving and surrender and sacrifice because of Jesus. When you read this psalm, he's not really explaining how we achieve unity. He's simply saying, let's celebrate. Let's be God's people who experience the wonder and the joy of unity together in God. And that's my prayer for us. That we will so highly value unity like God does that we will begin to see more and more that unity, the love of Christ, defines who we are as His people. Father, we thank You for the grace that is ours in Christ. Forgive us. Forgive us that we take this call to unity so lightly. Open our hearts that we might love you and love each other and be absorbed in your grace and your mercy. May your blessing rest upon the bread and the cup which we receive today and let it be food for our souls through the grace of Jesus. Whose name we pray. Amen. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. He gave thanks to the Father in heaven and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And on the same night he took the cup. And again he gave thanks to the Father in heaven and gave it to his disciples, saying, Drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for your sins and the sins of all people. Every time you do this, do it in remembrance of me. As you're released by rose this morning, come to the front, tear off a piece of bread, dip it into the cup, eat it. You may return to your seat by the outside aisles. We also have uh, trays of bread and cups that if coming to the front is difficult for you, or if you simply prefer, we're happy to serve you in your seat. Just let the usher know as your row is released. And I have gluten-free wafers and cups here. If you would like those, just let me know as you come forward. I always say this, but particularly today, I want to say we practice open communion at the Wesleyan Church. This might be the first time you've ever worshipped here. But if you come today with a desire in your heart for Christ, a desire to live in unity as God's people, come, receive these gifts from our gracious, loving, Heavenly Father.
truth is harder than a lie. The dark seems safer than the light. And everyone has a heart that loves to hide. I'm a mess and so are you. We've built walls nobody can get through. Yeah, it may be hard, but the best thing we could ever do, ever do, bring your brokenness and I'll bring mine. Cause love can heal what hurt divides and mercy's way. If we're honest, if we're honest, don't pretend to be something that you're not, living life afraid of getting caught. There is freedom found when we lay our secrets down at the cross, at the cross. So bring your brokenness and I'll bring mine. Cause love can heal what hurt divides. And mercy's waiting on the other side. If we're honest, if we're honest. change Yes, no. 
receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen. Thank mm-hmm. you.